Father and Son and Spirit, Triune God, we do praise you that we are free indeed through the work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Thank you that he is a living Lord who is now meeting with us here through the power of the Spirit and the reading of the Word of God. So we pray that you would encounter us today, Jesus. May these not just be words that we read, but may we encounter your living presence among us, that we might respond to you with our full obedience and our love. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church family. It's great to see you on this uh, lovely spring day. If you've been with us at all, we've been this uh, season of Epiphany and Lent in this series called The Questions of Jesus. We're trying to look at Jesus by looking at a number of the questions that he asked. He asked many questions to many different people like you and me um, throughout his ministry in the Gospels. And we've said throughout the series that questions are like keys that unlock something. If you've ever been asked a really good question, you'll know that a good question unlocks something within the soul, unlocks something new about you, about God, about life. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is trying to get into our souls to unlock something new that we, we might receive from him. So this question this morning, I'd say, is one of the, the great keys that Jesus wants to give us that will truly unlock the mystery of who he is for us. So let's read uh, from Mark chapter 8, <clears throat> verses 27 through 37. Let's hear God's word. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, <clears throat> he asked them, so who, who do people say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him, and he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus then turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Listen, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so I have always been <clears throat> pretty directionally challenged. Um, I have an internal orientation and compass that is just broken. Uh, you know, if you turn me around a couple times and ask me where Forest Avenue was, I couldn't really tell you. I, you know, over there, over there, not, not, just not really sure. 
And this has been a problem for me throughout my life, um, but it was especially a big problem when I was a teenager and I turned 16 and I started driving. This was, of course, long before cell phones and before Google Maps and these sorts of things. So I would get terribly lost all the time, actually many times in my own neighborhood. It was, it was, pretty, it was pretty ridiculous. <clears throat> anyway, so what I did is I developed a strategy for myself because the one place that I knew how to really get, and that if I could get there, it sort of helped my brain orient myself to reality, and that was my school. I drove to my high school every single day. I knew how to get there. So what I would do, no matter where I was going, or no matter where I was coming from, I would always drive to my school. So if I was way out in the suburbs at the mall, I would drive to the school and then drive home. If I was going to the dentist, I would drive to my school and then I would drive to, I know it sounds very strange. It is, I know. But for me, my school served as the orienting hub that made sense of everything else. What I wanna suggest to you this morning is that this question that we're looking at could very well be the most important question we look at in this series because it is the orienting hub that makes sense of everything else. In a way, everything goes to this question and everything flows out of this question. All the questions that we are looking at in this series in some ways come back to this question. So when Jesus asked, as we heard him ask a few weeks ago, what do you want me to do for you? Behind that question is, do you believe that I am the one who can satisfy your heart's desires? When Jesus asks you, why do you worry or why are you afraid? Beneath that question is, do you believe that I am the one who can rule and reign over your life? When he asks, has no one condemned you? Behind that question is him asking, do you believe that I am the one who is able to forgive your sin and free you from shame. All the questions that we look at in this series come in the end back to this question of Jesus's identity. Who do you say I am? So as crazy as it sounds, this man, the identity of this guy who lived 2,000 years ago in a tiny little area of Palestine, that this guy and his identity is the key to life the key to the world, the key to understanding God in all things. So this is a really important question. Who do you say I am? So let's look at that question this morning, and let's also look at the other questions that flow out of this one. So we'll begin by looking at who do you say I am, and then we'll look at Jesus asking us, what do you think I'm here to do? And then we'll finally look at how will you respond to me? So let, let's begin with this. Who do you say I am. I want you to think of the book of Mark as a big play in two big acts, act one, act two. And act one could be called the identity of Jesus, and act two could be called the mission of Jesus. And this passage, commentators say, is the hinge, the hinge passage that holds together the first and second parts of the book of Mark. It is, in some ways, the culmination of the first part and the beginning of the second part. Act one, part one of the book of Mark, the dominant theme of part one is this, who is Jesus? Jesus does crazy stuff. We've been seeing him do crazy stuff in this book, casting out demons, healing people from terrible illnesses, 
prophesying in the name of God and pronouncing forgiveness of sin, confronting the authorities, teaching with authority. We've seen Jesus be doing these amazing things. And the great question that everyone is asking, all going viral around the countryside, is who is this man? Do you remember the, the story of the calming of the sea that we looked at a few, years ago, a few weeks ago? And Jesus stands up in the boat and he tells the hurricane to quiet down and the hurricane comes to a calm and the waves are still. And do you remember the disciples, it says at the verse 41 of that chapter that they were terrified and they looked at one another and do you remember what they said? Who is this? Who is this? And that is the great question that everyone is asking in the first part of the book of Mark. So here is Jesus walking along from... Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. It's about, it's about a six or seven hour walk probably. So I just want you to imagine that Jesus is walking along with his disciples. So it's this little group of about, you know, 12 guys. And, and they're walking along with Jesus. And Jesus decides he is going to take the question that everyone has been asking about him and turn it back to ask the disciples. This is a great tactic, right? In fact, if you're a parent, you'll know that some of your best conversations come while you're traveling between, you're like driving to soccer practice, you decide you're going to pull out the big question for your kid, you know. So tell me about that F on your test, you know. So, um, so he, this is a good parenting tactic. And so he's, he's walking along with his disciples. They're just kind of looking at the trees or the birds or whatever. And Jesus says, so guys, who do people say I am? And they say, well, you know, uh, some people say you're, John the Baptist raised from the dead. Other people say you're like a reincarnated version of Elijah. You know, other people say you're this great teacher. Other people think you're just a really awesome rabbi or a great prophet. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's kind of what people say. And so they're walking along. It's a little quiet. And then Jesus says, so, what about you? Who do you say I am? And they're kind of looking at each other. Not me. You know, they're like putting their, not me. <laughs> they're wondering like who, who's going to say anything? Is anyone going to say anything? And of course, Peter then, impetuous Peter, speaks up, leans forward, maybe in a whisper, says, you are the Christ. Now let's just pause there. What is the Christ? What does that mean? Christ is not Jesus' last name just to be clear. Um, it is actually a, a title. It's, a, it's an ancient title that means anointed one or Messiah, as it's sometimes translated in this text. From an age old ago, God had promised through his prophets that he would raise up an anointed one, a Christ, who would be the deliverer of his people. So in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, it says, the days are coming when I will raise up a Christ who will reign wisely and do what is right and just in the land. So for hundreds of years, there was this great promise among the Jewish people that there would be a king, not just a king, but the king, the deliverer, the anointed one who would come into Jerusalem. He would cleanse the temple. He would rout the enemies of Israel, and he would restore Israel to its place of glory Again, this is who they were looking for. So when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, what he's saying is, you are the one we've been waiting for. 
You are the promised one. You are the king of kings. You are the anointed deliverer. You are the one that our moms and our dads and our grandmas and our grandpas and our great-grandpas and our great-great-grandmas and everybody, all of us, you are the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, you got it. You finally know who I am. Now, here's what I want to say about this before we move on. Jesus does this to each of us. At some point, he's, he's let these disciples hang around him for about a year now. He's kind of let them watch, observe, see what he's doing. But at some point, this is the moment in which he is no longer allowing them to be passive observers. And he is putting this question in their face and inviting them to name who they think he is, to cross the threshold of belief. And at some point in all of our lives, each one of us has to do that. For me, it was my freshman year in college. You know, I had become a Christian with my family in middle school. Growing up in southeast Tennessee, uh, everybody I knew was a Christian. I went to a Christian school. I went to a Christian church. I only, knew Christ I only had Christian friends and only knew Christian people. So when I went to UVA my first year and I started taking philosophy and world religion classes, I started getting rocked. And I started asking some serious questions about what it was that I believed and if this faith that I had been told about in this very safe and sheltered environment was actually true or whether this was just some religious Southern mentality that was passed on to me and now I'll pass it on to others. Is this something that I actually believe? And I remember lying down, face down on the floor in UVA chapel, crying out to God, knowing that I, at some point, need, I needed to make a decision about this man, whether he was just another religious figure that I've been learning about in my classes, and if so, I could just sort of live my own life the way that I wanted to live, or if I actually believed that he was who he claimed to be, the Christ of the living God, and I knew the choice that I would make would determine the rest of my life. And what I want to suggest to you is that every single one of us has to make that choice at some point. Jesus doesn't mind you hanging around for a while. He really doesn't. And actually, we want third to be a place that is very welcome to skeptics. If you, if you don't know what you believe, if you're not a Christian, if you're trying to figure stuff out, if you have serious doubts, this is like a really safe place. You can ask those things. Not everyone here is a Christian. We can ask those things openly and plainly. But what I want you to know is that there comes a time in every person's life, and it might be today for some of you, that Jesus is actually looking at you. And he's saying, who do you say that I am? And at that moment... You cannot depend on other people's answers to that question. You cannot depend on your spouse's answer to that question. You cannot depend on your pastor's answer. You cannot depend on your upbringing's answer. Uh, students, I know there's some of you who are students and kids that are here. You can't depend on your parents' answer or your youth pastor's answer to that question. There comes a point in everyone's life where Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, who do you say that I am? And at that point, you have a choice. You can say, you're a great prophet. You're a great teacher. You're among the great, spectacular religious leaders of the, of the earth, and I can just kind of go on and live my life the way that I want to live. Or you can say, you are the Christ. You are the one that my soul needs. You are the one that I and the whole world have been waiting for. But I need to warn you, because if that's the way that you answer that question, then it means that your life has to forever change. Who do you say I am? So that really leads to the second part of his question, and that is, what do you think I'm here to do? 
Look at verse 31 and 32. Immediately, Jesus begins to tell them what he as the Christ has come to do. Let's be clear. Peter and the disciples had some very clear expectations about what the Messiah would do when he shows up. They were planning for and expecting a Messiah who was a political and military leader. They were expecting that this guy, this Christ, when he would come, would come in Jerusalem, that he would seize the throne, he would get rid of the Romans, the enemies of Israel, and he would restore Israel to a place of political power again. That's what they were expecting. And so I just want you to imagine this moment, okay? Jesus asks who he is. Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, bingo. At this moment, what the disciples are thinking is, this is go time, y'all. This is it. I mean, they are expecting Jesus to look at, John, look at Peter and say, hey, man, you get the swords. Matthew, you get the spears. They're expecting Jesus to, like, pull out his whiteboard and start drawing, like, how they're going to, like, flank Jerusalem and come in and take power. I mean, that's what they were expecting. Like, let's roll. It's go time, Jesus. We're ready for this. We've been waiting for this. You are the Christ. And then Jesus says, verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed. After three days, rise again. I, I can't even explain to you. I can't even imagine the shock that they must have been feeling hearing Jesus say these words. You know, there was a, there was a basketball game last night. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was a good game. And, at, you know, I just want you to imagine this, okay? So UVA ties this really important game in the last second of the game goes into overtime, okay? So I just want you to imagine this. Tony Bennett, let's say he gets together with his team to prep them right before the five minutes of overtime. You know, St. Bennett, he's there, St. Tony, and he's, and, he's with his, and he's with his men. Now, I just want you to imagine this, that he, 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 looks at his, he looks at his guys, you know, he looks at them each in the face, and he says, okay, guys, here's the plan. We're going to get out there, and we're going to lose. <laughs> Cow guy, no, no threes. You know. I just want you to, every time you get the ball, every time you get it, you just turn it over, turn it over, turn it over. No points on the board. We are going to go down. <laughs> Ready? Break. It'd be like, are you insane, Tony? We did not come here to lose. We came here to win. And y'all, that is just a, just a tiny flavor of what the disciples must have been thinking right now. Except this, the stakes were way bigger than the final four here. They were depending on this man to be the savior of Israel in the Savior of the world, and he is standing right there in front of them saying, yes, I am the Christ, and I'm going to lose. Come and lose with me. Come and die. This was such a violent, disturbing reframing of what the Messiah was supposed to do. No one in the history of Israel had ever associated suffering, rejection, and death with the 
Messiah. It was such a violent upheaval of their worldview that you could see Peter's reaction. Look at verse 32. He says, yo, this is not the plan. This is not the agenda of the Messiah. You did not come here to lose. You're supposed to win. You're supposed to conquer, not suffer. You're supposed to triumph, not die. No, no. We're not doing this. You're not doing this. He rebukes him with the heaviest possible terms. What does Jesus do? He comes right back. Verse 32, get behind me, Satan. Whoa, right? Like I've been in some arguments, but I've never pulled out that one, right? I would, I would not recommend that with your spouse in the kitchen when you're arguing, you know. Um, but yet Jesus can do it, and he is not being hyperbolic here, friends, because he knows that the Father has given him a mission. He knows that the evil one has already once sought to, to, to subvert his mission when he was in the desert, and he knows that what Peter is suggesting to him here is a lie from the pit of hell itself. I must die. I must go to the cross. So what Jesus is doing is he is completely undermining and redefining their expectations of Messiah. He says, yeah, I am here to win. I am here to conquer. I am here to bring my kingdom. But I am not going to be doing that through power and through force and through violence. I will do it through suffering and rejection and death because my throne is not in the palace. My throne is on the cross. That's the kind of Messiah I am. So let me ask you, what do you think Jesus came to do for you? You know, we're not first century Jews, so we don't have all this sort of messianic political and military expectation. Yet, we all do because of our culture. We have expectations about what life is all about. And for us Americans, most of us have been told all of our lives that life is about a certain set of things, self-advancement, happiness, Greatness, success. And if you are a Christian in America, it is very easy to co-opt Jesus, just like Peter. Very easy to co-opt him into your own agenda of personal self-advancement. There are many Jesuses out there on the market for you. There is friendly fireman Jesus who will rescue you from your troubles. There is sympathetic therapist Jesus who just is there to kind of make you feel better about yourself. There is uh, American hero, Jesus, who's there to help you advance in the American dream. There there is kind of Tony Robbins life coach, Jesus, who's there to just kind of help you get a winning life. And what I want you to see is that just like Peter, we are prone to co-opt Jesus into our own expectations of what life is all about, and Jesus is shattering it like a rock through a window. He is turning our ideas on their head, and he is saying that God's power is not revealed in glory and victory, but in humiliation and suffering, that Christianity is not this self-help message about living a good life. It is a message about a man being brutally executed on a Roman torture device, and the shocking claim that in this event of the cross, God's power is revealed. So if this is true, brothers and sisters, listen, if this is true, and you're going to confess this crucified Messiah, then it means that everything you thought is wrong. That everything you thought about what power and greatness and success is all about is turned upside down on its head. It means that with Jesus, the way up is the way down. And the way to get power is to give power. And to get happiness is to not seek your own happiness. 
And to get rich means to give your riches away. And that greatness is the way of servanthood and redemption is the way of suffering and power is the way of weakness. He is undermining everything, saying, if you're going to receive me as I am and not who you want to be, me to be, then you're going to have to let me turn your world upside down because I am a crucified Messiah. You know, Sigmund Freud once said that God is just a projection of human wants and desires. And that may be true with most gods, but not this one, because nobody would ever think this up. Nobody would ever want this. Nobody wanted it then. Nobody wants it now. Nobody wants a crucified Messiah. Nobody wants to believe that the path to life goes right through death. But this is the Messiah we've been given. What do you want me to do for you? What do you think I'm here to do? So that really leads to the final question, and that is how are you going to respond to this person? And Jesus demands that. Look at verse 34. He says, Then he called to the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, taking up our cross, that has become, unfortunately, a pejorative term in our time that basically means sort of putting up with something difficult or annoying, like a knee injury or a difficult boss or a coffee shop with no Wi-Fi or something like that. Um, so I'm bearing my cross today. You know? But I want you to know that the, crowd, that the crowd listening would not have heard it that way. If you were a person in the first century and you saw a man walking down the road carrying a large cross on his shoulder, you would not wonder where he was going. Hey, man, what's up? Where are you going with that cross? You would know that that man was a condemned criminal who was on his way to execution. And so for Jesus to say to these first century hearers, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. I mean, this was shocking. This was deeply disturbing that he is inviting those who follow him to go the way of crucifixion themselves. It was very clear at this moment that Jesus is not asking them for like a few minor adjustments to their life, a few tweaks to their lifestyle, but that he is actually asking them to abandon their agenda, to go the way of suffering, pain, and even death. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids them to come and die. And I don't know how to make this sound good. I really don't. I don't think the church knows how to talk about this very much. Not many churches do. I've never seen a church that says, you know, welcome to Third Church. It's a great place to come and die. You know, it doesn't brand well, not at all. And yet, I think the tragedy of our age, one of them, is that Christians have become so accustomed to comfort and affluence and power that we have made Jesus' call very comfortable, being a Christian very comfortable. It's like we were handed a Doberman pincher and we traded it in for a poodle or one of those awesome Japanese steak knives that cut through a can and we said, oh no, I'll take a butter knife instead. We've taken this call to follow Jesus and be a disciple, which in the first century meant certain risk, humiliation, and even death. And we have turned being a Christian into almost a respectable badge of status. This is especially the case in the American South, where we have, it can be sort of a sign of your 
reputation along with your country club membership and your white picket fence and your 2.5 kids. I know I'm being hard today, but it's Lent, so we can be hard, right? Y'all can handle that. So let's get clear. Being a Christian is not just to believe, but to follow. Jesus is not calling churchgoers. He's calling disciples. And there's only two kinds of Christians. There's not like regular Christians who come to church and then radical Christians who like try to actually follow Jesus and obey and take up their cross. No, there's only one kind of Christian, and that is those who are disciples, who deny themselves, who take up their cross, who go the way of humility and suffering and even death. And I would say if being a Christian, I want you to listen to me carefully here, and I'll say this as gently as I know how. If being a Christian has not pretty significantly altered your life in some way, like significantly changed your value system, really changed what you live for, dramatically altered the way that you spend your money, the way that you use your time, and what your greatest ambitions are, if being a Christian has not pretty significantly altered your life, you may be a churchgoer, but you might not be a disciple. Because Jesus is calling those who confess him to also follow him. Follow him on the way to the cross. What would this look like for you? I can't tell you that. You have to ask Jesus that yourself. What would it mean for you to take up your cross, to deny yourself, and to follow him? For the Christians who were first reading this book, the book of Mark in the second century, for them it meant knowing that they would likely undergo burning and execution and crucifixion under Emperor Nero. And that, so they read this as a comfort to them, that they were not cursed by God, they were following in the way of Jesus. For Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who read this in the middle of the 20th century, he knew that to take up his cross and to deny himself meant to do everything in his power to stop Hitler in his campaign to exterminate the Jews. And that for him, that meant his own execution and death. For those of us who are here living in a very different world, I don't know what it will mean for you to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. But I'll tell you, I see this among you every single day. I've seen a woman with chronic pain, living with intense chronic pain every day, refuse to give in to bitterness and complaining. I've seen a father with a very difficult child who, does, who wants everything to withdraw from his son, choose every day to move toward his son instead. I've seen a family of five take in a few foster kids and completely disrupt the happy equilibrium in their family life. I've seen single folks, both gay and straight, willingly embrace a life of celibacy in order to stay true to Jesus. I've seen a person who chooses to stay in a really difficult marriage and who is deeply unfulfilled, but to stay and choose to love and to love and to love even when they want to hit eject. I've seen someone forgive another person even when that person has absolutely no idea what they have done to really harm them. I've seen a business person refuse to comply with sub-ethical standards and sacrifice profit and promotion in order to stay faithful to Jesus. I've seen one of you choose to live dramatically below your means in order to give a whole bunch of money away. I've seen a high school student among us choose to identify with Jesus and welcome the exclusion that it brought. All of these are really different, but what they all have in common is that each of these people have said to Jesus, what you say, I will do. And where you send, I will go. And what you want, I will give, because I believe you are the Christ. 
You are the Christ. You are the answer. You are the orienting hub through which my life makes sense. You are the one I've been waiting for. You might ask, why would I do this? Well, Jesus says it right here. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus is not out to ruin your life, but to give you life because he loves you. If you try to save your life by pursuing what you want, I promise you, you'll lose it. But if you lose everything in order to gain Jesus, what you gain is what is real and what is lasting. As C.S. Lewis once said, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So my dear brothers and my dear sisters, Jesus is asking you, who do you say I am? This is the question that everything comes back to and that everything flows out of. And I hope that you will believe today with me that he is the Christ. He is the king. And he is not just any king. He is the king on the cross. He loves you so much. He is so deeply committed to you that he was willing to endure anything and everything, all kinds of suffering, even the depths of hell itself, in order to save you, forgive you, and give you life. And so how could you see this king who gave everything for you and not want to give your everything, your everything to him in return? This is life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you and praise you that you rejected the way of the world that would wanted prestige and power, and you instead went the way of crucifixion. And that because you went that way, we have life, we have forgiveness. And we pray that all those here who would contemplate you would be willing to have the faith to trust you and to follow after you in the way of the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The choir is going to sing a piece, and I'll just invite you to not see this as a piece of performance, but as a piece of worship, and you would meditate on the words of Christ as they sing and ask yourself what Jesus may be asking of you today.